After many years of disastrous, incredibly costly, counterproductive American Mideast policy, might this be a moment to demand change? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. The incoming administration has so much terribly urgent business on its plate, it's really unfathomable. One of the less visible items is American policy toward the Middle East. Now, perhaps it's time to ask the overriding question, what is American interest in that region? Of course, the outgoing administration made a bad situation infinitely worse, but it's not exactly like there was a sensible, productive policy before Trump. If our goal was to continuously increase anger and resentment toward the U.S., success has been tremendous. But if perhaps we think it might be best to show that America does stand for peace and justice and democracy, boy, have we gone off track. All administrations from Harry Truman in 1948 to the present have clearly been determined to let oil and weapons sales be the sole determinant of our Middle East policy. And the price paid by the people who live there has been very high. And that in turn has not served us, though some selfish interests have been enriched monetarily rather powerfully. What better moment than now with the change in administration to articulate and push for something better, something that more justly serves them and us? Simply because we've always done it one way is no reason to keep doing it. Or another old bit of advice when you're in a hole, stop digging. The volatility in the Middle East is not abstract, it's concrete. And it's here and affects us every day. We can do better. It's not all that complicated, really. Peace and justice are not superfluous or peripheral. They are practical and necessary for, if only for good business practices, for the people who live in that very large and globally important Middle East region. One would think they were uh, disappointed the topic never came up in any presidential debates. At least I didn't hear it. With an incoming administration, at least the opportunity for change is there. Will Biden look anew at this long, festering problem which seems perpetually to be worsening? Never any closer to real resolution? The power that the United States has can hardly be overstated, but thus far, as our guest Mandy Turk, the executive director of the Middle East Research and Information Project, points out, Administrations of both parties have often been a source of destabilization and inequality in the region. Mandy Turk's new article is titled, Why Americans Should Demand a Better U.S.-Middle East Policy. Thanks so much for being with us, Mandy. And first, if you could please tell us about your organization, Middle East Research and Information Project. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Middle East Research and Information Project, which is better known by its acronym MARAP, um, is actually celebrating its 50th anniversary um, oh. this year in 2021. Oh, yes. Goodness. Um, and so for 50 years, um, academics, activists, journalists, and other people who are interested have been publishing pieces based on really deep research that challenge a lot of these dominant narratives um, that have been so toxic about the region. Um, At the beginning, it was really a lot about finding a space where people could be critical of Israel and the Israeli occupation of um, the 
Palestinian people. And that was something that really couldn't be published in other places. Um, And so, but we also were criticizing um, autocratic regimes in the region, U.S. foreign policy, um, as well as just really taking um, evidence-based, deep, hard looks at what was happening there. Oh, wow. 50 years. That's that's impressive. Yes. And there probably hasn't been as much change there as there should have been. Um, It's actually funny that you say that. Um, One of our original founding editors, a a wonderful man named Joe Stork, um, had us over last time I was in D.C. and showed us bound issues from 1971. And so many of the topics that were in those first issues are topics we're still covering in much the same way today. Slightly different details, slightly different language. um, But it it was was sort of a sobering realization that as uh, much as things change, they stay the same. I am reminded of a Talking Heads song, Same As It Ever Was. Yes. Great song. (laughs) Uh, Many Americans have the impression that the region on its own is always warring amongst itself. Syria, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Yemen, Palestine, and Israel. Is that true? Have they always, I mean, has it just, you know, people have the impression there's nothing we can do. They're always fighting each other. Is that true? Um, No, I certainly don't think that it is. And I think it's based on um, a fair amount of prejudice of, Mm. oh, these are people who are just inclined towards conflict. Um, And you see that um, sort of reflected in the way people casually talk about different issues like sectarianism, like this sort of supposedly ancient conflict between Palestinians and Israelis um, that is not, you know, ancient at all. Um, And I think people really fail to realize how much occupation and outside influence has been in the region for hundreds of years, you know, from the time of the Ottomans um, and I mean before, but really with the time of the Ottomans and then the Balfour Declaration um, and then post-World War II, you know, a lot of um, different uh, global powers vying for influence in the region and how um, devastating that has been and how a lot of those decisions and policies um, and occupations have really set up the situation for conflict. And after World War I, during the war, when uh, the Western powers knew they were going to win, they were already busy at work drawing lines in the sand, quite literally, as to who gets what. And the people on the ground were not consulted. And guess what? They don't like that. (laughs) You know, there is great resentment against the United States, having to do with our double talk about democracy. Which Mm -hmm. autocracies in the region have they seen us embrace? Yes. Um, Well, I think there's two um, sort of main poles around which this sort of feeling of um, sort of recognition of American hypocrisy operate. So one is our embrace of autocrats, and I think nothing um, is more potent than our tight relationship with uh, the Saudi leadership. Right. And our arms sales to the Saudis and their allies um, and our um, over many, many administrations and eras willingness to look the other way, both at Saudi oppression of its own people within its own borders, but also its sponsoring, encouraging, um, supporting of um, violent extremists outside its borders throughout the region. And that is not lost on people. And then I would say the second um, really important um, place where people in the region identify hypocrisy is with our tight relationship with Israel um, and our backing of Israel over the Palestinian people. 
And yeah, the Saudis, it's, it's fascinating to me how Iran is painted as so bad, so evil, whereas the Saudis are our good buddies and they get anything they want from us. What, what about, we have, the U.S. doesn't make a lot of stuff anymore, but we do make some very good surveillance and guidance technology, military technology. The Saudis depend on it, and uh, they're using it against Yemen. And I believe uh, even the Egyptian government uh, uses it perhaps against its own people. So what kind of surveillance and guidance technology? I mean, we don't know about that, but the people there on the ground know about it. Tell us about that stuff, please. Yes. So, um, you know, I'm not up. I'm not an expert on the actual ways the technologies work or anything like that. Um, But yes, we've been, um, you know, sort of behind the scenes, many companies sell um, surveillance technologies, data mining technologies that can be used. um, And now we're looking at face recognition technology, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Um, And like you correctly said, in places like Saudi Arabia, those have been used um, mostly overseas, although I would imagine that they're used internally as well. But we've seen really in Egypt, um, who's been a big consumer, we've done pieces on this in Mara, uh, those kinds of technologies and is is very interested in using them um, to suppress political opposition under the CC regime. Um, and we've seen them be just incredibly brutal um, against political activists, um, LGBTQ activists, um, you know, a range, a range of issues, not just limited to direct challenges to the regime. So it's become quite bad there. And again, I'm, I'm reminded, I'm old enough to remember the secret war in Cambodia. Well, it wasn't secret to the people in Cambodia. Right. You know, same kind of thing, right. I think. So there, you say there are critical issues that we, the U.S., cannot solve without real buy-in from regional actors. What are those critical issues that the people there feel quite concretely? Sure. So when I was writing in the piece, I was thinking a lot about climate change. I was thinking about public health. So I think if nothing uh, for has good has come out of this pandemic, one thing, mm. maybe a silver lining, is that we've recognized that public health doesn't recognize borders. It doesn't recognize um, tense government relationships. Um, it moves throughout the world really easily. And, and it, we're much able to keep ourselves healthy and safe if we have good cooperative relations um, with different regimes that we might not feel so great about at other times. Um, but climate change, I think, is an area where we really need to be working closely with the region and watching what they do and learning from them. Because the Middle East, um, it's no secret that many parts of the Middle East, particularly the Gulf portion of the Middle East, um, they are hot and going to get hotter. I've, you know, again, I'm not an expert on the science of it, but you know, I've read estimates that during the summer, the Gulf region could be uninhabitable for humans within 30 to 40 years at points. Um, anyone who's been there, you know, in a, in July, will, you know, this is not a surprise. Mm. It's, it's insanely hot. Um, And so watching how they manage those issues, learning with them, helping them develop technology that we can use, um, because we'll be feeling those effects down the road, Um, you know, thinking about whether it's incorporating more solar, whether it's desalinization and making that, if if it's possible to make that technology better, whether it's um, changing how you build or all sorts of different issues, um, they're going to have to manage it first. And so we should be there with them. And 
we know really uh, clearly that the Trump administration has denied that there is climate change. So yes. I'm guessing they haven't had our help yet. But I, I, I would think that you know we do have some technology and expertise that uh, could possibly help in terms of climate change. And and water is such a big issue. I just I can't imagine. Do you have? Any indications? I mean, Biden at this point hasn't taken office yet, and let's hope he does. Uh, that there, I mean, they at least recognize climate change, right? So, isn't it possible that if we were to help them with climate change issues, that that might actually be to our advantage? I I would think so. I would think that we can, um, you know, have the opportunity if we're partners in that effort in in their in, in, in the Middle East that we can learn from you know what goes right and what goes wrong since I don't think anyone is has a hundred percent sort of clarity on what exactly will be needed and what right. will work as the climate you know as the as the glo- globe heats and again I'm not a scientist sure. um, but I think you know watching with them and learning with them bringing what we can to the table um, but also you know um, learning from their their the expertise that they'll have to develop and you know, in terms of the Biden administration, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's hard to even talk about the Trump administration in the sense of like, what do you say? Do you know? Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, I mean, what do you say at this point? Um, but uh, you know, in the Biden administration, I think um, certainly, from what I know of his foreign policy team and people who have um, experience in the Middle East, obviously they have a much more collaborative, um, you know, partnership-minded approach to the region. Although, you know, they're um, pass or not without, I think, some critical errors, particularly around Iraq and things like that. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it, it, it will definitely be a better situation. And I think more opportunity for people to people programs, um, those kinds of things that can lead to those kinds of collaboration. Well, common sense seems to be lar- largely lacking. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons yeah. that uh, I, I think Trump won is because a lot of the people in the Midwest and the uh, less dense areas didn't feel listened to, didn't feel respected, and they got angry. Well, imagine that. You know, if we work yeah. collaboratively with with them and and listen to them, I can't help but think that there, this is an opportunity to do that, and that uh, we we can have a much better policy. Not just better in a uh, you know philosophical term, but it really in terms of what's good for America. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Mandy Turk, who is Executive Director of, I'll say the full name, Middle East Research and Information Project, also known as MARIP, which I'm sure if you Google MARIP, you can find them. And no doubt you're a 501c3, I would think, so that people can send money to you. What are the, speaking of money, what are the economies like there? Is, is there a middle class able to participate in self-government, what about what about the divide between rich and poor? Has it stayed about the same or worsened uh, since your founding in 1971? What about the economy? <laughs> well, so I think you cannot talk about um, one economic system in the region. We have really um, vast diversity of economic systems. So you have the Gulf states, which are by and large rentier states. So the um, economies in those places are. Um, controlled by the government, by the state, sometimes up to 80, 90% of the economy is dominated by the government. Um, and they, in turn, um, distribute those resources that they make from um, oil and gas sales to their citizens. 
So um, they tend to have very small citizenry. Saudi Arabia is a bit of the exception. They have a much larger um, citizenship in the 20 millions range. Um, but places like Qatar only have a few hundred thousand um, citizens. Um, so they're small, they're wealthy, as we know, and they are bringing in the money um, through the government and then distributing it out to their citizens. Then you have um, some countries where you have, um, you know, more of a um, sort of calmer middle class, although, you know, you have a small middle class in most countries. So mm -hmm. you have Morocco, Jordan that have some degrees of stability and have some degree of a middle class. Um, and then you have countries that have, um, uh, are also very reliant, this does include Morocco as well, very reliant on um, um, citizens from abroad sending um, sending funds to their, um, to their citizenry. And so Lebanon is an example where I don't remember the exact percentage, but a very, a very high percentage of the population, uh, the economy actually comes from abroad. Um, you have, if you can count Turkey into the Middle East, you have a fairly robust middle class there. Um, and mm. you have some countries that were sort of more socialist. I'm thinking of Syria prior to the war that were becoming less socialist and less even um, and less balanced economically in the years leading up to the civil war. So they really transitioned from being a oppressive um, sort of socialist state into really more of an oligarchic system. Um yeah, and and that's the way Syria is now, and uh, with uh, oh, yeah, they're they're oligarchic. I, I imagine, you know, looking at the old Ottoman Empire, pff, that we don't have sultans anymore, but they're the the tradition of of oligarchies. I imagine is uh, is pretty high, but I I also imagine I mean, there's a lot of people in that region. It's, I mean, the area you yeah. were talking about is is huge, yes. uh, so they. I, you know, oligarchies are strong, of course, militarily, but strong among the people, perhaps not so much. And I wonder about, as you, as you talk about the disastrous effects of American armed invasions and occupations of yes. Iraq and Afghanistan. It's off the front pages now for obvious reasons. But what about those? Uh, tell us about those disastrous effects of uh, our invasions and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. Are we doing sure. are helping them? Well, um, so I, I have a little more um, data and a little more insight into Iraq. So I'll probably just focus my comments on Iraq. And we've been publishing a lot about this at Merup. Um, but uh, decades now of war, war, toxic war debris, of ecological destruction because of warfare or because of um, repressive political policies to, public, to punish certain portions of the population in Iraq, um, have devastated the health landscape there. So they have a huge cancer epidemic. They, um, in places like Fallujah, they have um, insanely high numbers of children born with birth defects. Um, yeah. Um, and there are um, there have been um, like super re drug resistant superbugs, um, including one that we've published a piece about called that's been nicknamed Iraqi Bacter. Um, so it's like a bacteria that's come out of Iraq. Um, you know, no one, there's not um, always, and again, there's probably people who are more knowledgeable about the science of all of this. Um, and it, but it's so there, no one's exactly clear on Iraqi Bacter's exact origins, but it certainly comes out of these sort of ecological devastation as well as um, war debris. So um, incredibly high levels of mercury, high mm -hmm. levels of lead, um, uranium, depleted uranium. 
um, all from arms that have been buried under, you know, very low soil and things like that. Um, and so it's, it's, um, there's a Facebook page. Uh, we wrote about this in a piece. Um, and I can, you know, um, the links or people can Google this, but the, um, they can look on Merib on a, um, a piece from our, um, issue in, um, uh, fall of 2020, um, about a Facebook page that doctors in Fallujah at the hospital there started because there were so many birth defects and so many different kinds of birth defects that they started documenting it on a Facebook page. Um, yeah. And the woman who wrote the article, who's an anthropologist, was saying that when you're visiting with families, people will say, like, these were the kids that were born before the invasion and these were the kids that were born after. And often you see the kids that were born after. It's, it's visible, um, the effect of these kinds of birth defects and, and, and also cancer, a huge cancer epidemic that the government um, tried to um, sort of, you know, suppress information about. Absolutely amazing. That's one thing that we don't think about. I mean, in, no. uh, in Vietnam with Agent Orange, phew, tremendous, yes. uh, uh, you know, damage through uh, affecting DNA. And so, you know, we drop all these weapons and then uh, walk away from it. And gosh, having yes. a whole generation that's affected by that, why would people yes. be angry at the people who dropped yes. them and walked away? And the trauma and the trauma, you know, we don't talk about um, the mental health of people in the region um, and the trauma that they've been dealing with. So um, we don't think about you're creating generations of people who've lived through the Syrian civil war and seen unspeakable things, you know, generations of Iraqis or a whole generation or two generations now who are living through just massive traumas. What effect does that have on people as they grow up? missing school. We know we, we kind of, it gets mm. mentioned occasionally, but we're not really thinking about the long-term consequences of mass trauma. Well, we never think about long-term consequences of anything. Correct. <laughs> it, it just, it amazes me. So what opportunities might there be uh, present for, for building better relations? I mean, what, what could the U.S. gain by, what, you know, why is it in our interest, aside from being nice guys, which pff, I suppose technically could happen, but uh, you know, why is it, would it be in our interest to attend to some of these uh, uh, health problems in specific? Right. Um, well, I think, um, yes, there's a sort of um, psychic cost that we owe the people in the region that I think um, is good for the United States. And I think people smarter than me have made the connection between um, the structural racism that we have as mm -hmm. uh, dom domestically um, and the structural racism that we have in our foreign policy and the way we discard certain lives and certain health. Um, and so, you know, when we think about health comes in, outcomes in Iraq, you can think about parallels between, for instance, the vast differences in maternal mortality between black women and white women in the United States mm. um, and things like that. So if we're not solving all of these problems together, we're not going to fix our internal or, you know, our domestic problems. Um, I would also say that as we've known through, you know, the, the ISIS um, kind of coming out of the region and Al-Qaeda and different places, you know, when the Middle East is unstable, the rest of the world is unstable or less stable. Um, and that safety or lack of safety impacts us. And so why wouldn't we want to, you know, we don't we shouldn't want to Band-Aid those conflicts and those things, we should want to solve them so that we're not affected. Um, and then again, like I said in my article, and I really want to stress, as we watch people in the Middle East and uh, help them solve problems that are many of our own United States creating, mm -hmm. some not, 
you know, we, we have our own problems here very much. And a lot of them are very parallel to the problems there. And so why wouldn't we want to, you know, mm. be partners with people who are solving those problems? Cause it's not like we figured out how to solve our problems. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I think we think we forget about the Middle East as a place where we can really learn things from people there because they are working hard um, at these issues um, and sometimes are ahead of us in these issues. And so I think, you know, that kind of level of respect, if these are people, this is a region and these are people that we actually can learn from and not just in a sort of, you know, like kind of make me feel better about myself sort of way, but in, you know, real concrete lessons for us. Just listening and respecting, what a concept. And, you know, I think yeah. about all the lives lost in, in Vietnam and Indochina. Yeah. And now, U.S. and Vietnam, we're doing business. We're partners. Yep. We could have done that all along. And all yes. these probably millions of people uh, who lost their lives would still be with us. And there wouldn't be the uh, continued uh, legacy of Agent Orange and so much other of the debris that's on the ground, as you say, in, in Iraq particularly. And there's Iran, of course, which is always mm -hmm. painted as the super bad guys. Uh, I, I, it amazes me how Trump could have uh, assassinated that uh, high up in the government, the second most powerful man, yes. just, uh, just assassinated him. And economic sanctions have been mm -hmm. particularly harsh on the people of Iran. Mm -hmm. And you write that these punish the weakest members of society. And I, I have to ask, the same argument was used against sanctions in South Africa. But they, but they worked. They actually did work. There were sanctions that, that you know, people said it, it affected people with lowest income. But how, how are the sanctions working in Iran? And do we have any indication? I mean, they just keep ramping up and ramping up how the new administration might deal with the economic sanctions. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think the new administration has made it very clear that they are um, interested in um, re-entering the JCPOA, the um, Iran nuclear deal oh, um, that Trump famously left. I think they've been pretty clear about that. And there have been um, some positive signs from um, Iran that they hopefully will not extract too high a price um, for Trump breaking um, the deal. Although, you know, when people get to the negotiating table, we shall see. Um, and you know, there is some school of thought as well that in Iran, it did, the, you know, pre-existing economic sanctions did maybe push Iran into um, a more open negotiating posture when it came time to negotiate the JCPOA. But I think what people don't realize is that there's a huge cost. Um, so, for instance, the uh, economic sanctions as they currently exist um, do carve out an exemption for medicines, so Iranians should be able to influence uh, or to import medicine. Um, and while U.S. sanctions, you know, I'm again, I'm not a sort mm -hmm. of sanctions treasury expert, um, but they if they don't just affect the U.S. or people who signed on to them because so many um, places in the world are dependent on trade with the U.S., or through U.S. banking, people are very hesitant to do anything that could cross, mm. you know, the sanctions at all. So, for instance, while there is an exemption for medicine, there may not be an exemption for um, the, like, container that the medicine comes in, or it might be unclear. So, um, we did an interview uh, with a pharmaceutical manager in Iran, an anonymous interview, and she was explaining, well, the Indian company that makes um, some of the 
casing essentially, I guess, for the medicine. Well, they weren't clear if that's part of the medical exemption or not. So they just didn't want to import them. So we can import the medicine, but we can't distribute it because we don't have anything to put it in. Mm-hmm. So these, these things that you think about, um, you know, that have these sort of reverberating effects. So then people can't get the medicine, um, medical equipment being, being very, very old. Um, and, you know, economic sanctions can also have the effect of making people feel more solidarity with their government and feeling like, okay, we're all under siege here. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it might, it's not worth the cost to people potentially. And, you know, Iran, um, the Iranian people have had really, really rough economic times. And they've had a very, um, you know, big COVID outbreak Mm. um, and haven't been able, um, you know, medically, it's been very challenging for them. Oh, I can't imagine, really. Yeah. For, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about options for the Middle East now that uh, we're changing administration. Our guest today is Mandy Turk, Executive Director of the Middle East Research and Information uh, Project. And Iran, you know, they, they've they undergone some, they have a lot of experience with the West, shall we say. In 1953, uh, there was that uh, coup that overthrew mm-hmm. the popular uh, president, uh, Mossadegh. And, you know, so they know about Western imperialism and control, all mm-hmm. about oil, all about oil all the time. And I've talked to people who've been to Iran, and they say that the people there... I mean, it's a huge country. People may forget that. It is huge. I don't know what the population is, but it it's very, very big. And a lot of the, especially younger people, look are largely Western. They'd like to have better relations with the United States and with the West, I'm sure. Are they, I mean, why are they, I'm not sure. The nuclear deal kept them from building nuclear weapons, and then Trump got out of it. So what a surprise. They went back to it. I, I wonder what the possibilities may be with, with Iran. You know, they're never going to accept another Shah that we put in there, that we and the Brits put in there. But, but is there possibility of the U.S. working better with Iran? I, I get the sense that it would be, but maybe, I don't know. Maybe they really are have become really uh, incredibly anti-American. I mean, we see those pictures of death to America and burning the American flag and all that. And I understand that when people talk there, like if uh, if somebody is waving down a taxi and the taxi passes them by, people would yell, death to taxi drivers. You know, it's just something that people do there. What, what about Iran? Uh, I mean, so I, I've, I've never been to Iran, um, but I think for sure a better Iran policy is is possible. And I think there's indications that Iran is um, yeah. open um, that said, you know, Iran is is can be and ha- is um, a problematic player in the region. Um, I think about their outsized role in destabilizing Lebanon and Syria. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I lived in Syria for two years. I wrote oh, my wow. dissertation about Syria. So I can speak about that a little bit in terms of the context of when it means when people say death to the U.S. Um, and what their feelings are. And I think people have a very... Um, like complicated mixed feelings towards the United States. Um, I think that they both 
admire, although this has probably changed under the Trump administration <laughs> um, in, in terms of, I think, you know, America's sort of standing really sort of nosediving. Um, but I think people felt like we talked about very um, strongly the, the hypocrisy um, and, you know, sort of talking out of both sides of your mouth, mm -hmm. um, tolerating, you know, sins from one and not from the other. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, people often had relatives that lived in the U.S., had aspirations to go to the U.S., or had some, you know, something about the U.S. that they liked or felt connected to. And I think people have, you know, just like we have maybe complicated feelings about lots of places in the world, they wouldn't say it was one degree. But I think when people say death, you know, to the U.S., like, I don't, I, I, I've never heard that about the taxis in Iran. Um, you know, I mean, people, there there was also some, some real, um, you know, very visceral anger. And, um, uh, so I, I wouldn't discount that also. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think that Iran, I mean, Iran is a, is a, you know, it has issues within its society, but it's a flourishing, you know, full place with people of all different stripes and education levels and income levels. Um, and, um, there's a lot there, I think that people could, um, do trade deals with, or, you know, educational exchanges with, like, there's a lot there to, to dig into and a lot of richness there, um, that we're, we're really not, um, able to see because of these sort of tense relationships at the same time, you wouldn't want a U.S. policy that just sort of said, you know, oh, okay, like we're sort of good, but you're in Yemen, you're in Syria, you're in Lebanon. I mean, that that also has to be has to be dealt with. Uh -huh. And there is there is Yemen, which is, you know, the yes. Saudis are, are being brutal there with our weapons and guidance systems. And I don't know how true this is, but it, it's alleged that that it that Yemen is sort of a proxy war between the Saudis and Iran. I mean, my impression is that there are the two big you know, big players in the area, Iran and the Saudis, and they're bitter enemies. I, I don't know how much that's playing in Yemen or if that's, you know, exaggerated that the people of Yemen, you know, want to govern themselves. I, what's that? Well, I think what we've seen, you know, in these um, civil wars is that what start as very much, you know, um, international conflicts with people really, you know, struggling to figure out how to how to govern within themselves or how to live together real really different visions for their country so like Syria and in Yemen have as you mentioned um you know those were both not wealthy countries and so what's happened is you've had outside players come in and use these as reasons to pour arms and pour weapons in and fight fights um in these places through these places so i think both are happening right mm -hmm. and so you can't lose sight that you know there are yemeni people and they have their own um, their own issues and their own reasons to be in conflict and, um, you know, mm -hmm. overthrowing and the attempted overthrow and overthrow a very corrupt leadership. And that was the same in Syria as well. Um, but yes, you're right that, that it's become incredibly dangerous. Um, it's almost like it's, you know, these conflicts have been pumped up in terms of arms on steroids by mm -hmm. these outside players and they've gotten so deadly um, and, so and so chaotic and so hard to put back together right from all of these things um i do think that we've seen indications um in washington in general since the murder of khashoggi the mm. saudi journalist um and dissident who was murdered in the saudi consulate in istanbul in i want to say 2018 um and the real horror um by politicians of both parties in the united states um i know biden has specifically mentioned that 
um, as a reason for reassessing the Saudi relationship. And I think um, a, a, an easy policy change that I hope we'll see in it, I, I'm cautiously optimistic what we will see is pulling back the United States support um, and selling of arms for the Saudis for Yemen. Boy, that would be... We have been funny that. And I, I do think that that's something that um, would be achievable and I hope it goes through. That would be a very good thing to do for sure. Oil. <clears throat> That's yes. somewhat of a factor in the, what we're talking about. But <laughs> oil is now less important to the United States. We've become a lot more energy independent. What, and, and you know, the whole area has been fought over for oil. I mean, the, the Germans and the Brits fought over oil in that region in World War II, uh, but it is less important. Uh, what might the effects of that change be? Yeah, well, I think um, you'll see, I think, um, reordering in the Gulf of the way that governments and states and citizens um, interact with each other. So you've seen since COVID, because COVID sort of coincided with um, a steeper drop in oil prices, um, but there was a sense that this was coming before then, um, for instance, taxation be introduced for the first time. Um, and so what does that do in situations where people are, you know, generally pretty acquiescent with the government? Mm -hmm. Not to say there isn't dissent and that there isn't suppression of dissent, because there absolutely is. Um, but um, by and large, you know, you're, you have this sort of arrangement where the government is bringing in a lot of money and you're getting some of it. Right. And the government, you know, you, you don't have all for instance, full freedom of speech or anything like that. Mm. Well, once you start introducing, for instance, taxation and things like that, does that shift? What does that relationship mm. look like? Um, I also think, you know, one of the things that hasn't been talked about and kind of remains to be seen is with these new Abraham Accords, these um, deals that Pompeo and Trump made um, uh, with the UAE and Morocco mm. um, in exchange for normal, I wouldn't even say peace, but like sort of official normalization of relationships. Um, you know, these are not popular among people, citizens. Um, you know, Israel remains very unpopular. The occupation of Palestine remains incredibly divisive, sort of charged and unpopular. I wouldn't even say divisive mm -hmm. because it's sort of so unanimous. Um, and I don't think we know yet what that effect you know, for the governments to sort of unilaterally change things, what that will look like for people down the road. Um, so that sort of dovetailed off the oil question. Um, but I do, I think the effect of that will be the most pronounced in the Gulf because you, um, you know, Syria has very small amounts of oil in other places. Um, um, but that really remains to be seen what the Gulf will do that because the whole system and the way the Gulf society and state is structured is based on, you know, these really, um, really intense sort of flows of money from yeah. these sales of um, LNG and, um, and, and oil. Yeah. Yeah. They've been so. huge, obviously. I mean, you know, when they, they've had the market and now uh, the yes. market for it is, is changing, which is obviously a good thing in terms of climate change and many other right. things. And I, I can't help but think that the Saudi royal family must be a little bit nervous now that, you know, they, they're not going to, you know, hand out all this money to the people to, to keep them quiet. Uh, and, you know, they're very repressive uh, at home and, and abroad, I believe. So, uh, yeah. I mean, Saudi especially, I think um, I've spent a lot of time in Qatar. Um, I used uh. to work on a project there. And, you know, in the smaller Gulf states, it's a little bit different. Um, you have, so the way the countries are set up is 
anywhere from 80 to 90 percent of the uh, the people living in the country are expats, not citizens. Mm. So you have very small numbers of um, nationals. Um, and there is a bit of a feeling there of like, well, it's sort of nationals against everybody, not against per se, but kind of nationals were set apart and were sort of in this club. And of course, there's internal differences, but we sort of keep it in the family. <laughs> um, and then there's everybody else who's here working. Um, and so, and again, not to say that there aren't real dissidents and there's not real repression happening because there absolutely is within that. But um, there's a bit of that sense in the smaller countries. Um, yeah, the Saudi question, I mean, I don't know what the Saudi regime thinks and feels <laughs> uh, in terms of nervousness. They seem to be um, preternaturally confident um, <sighs> in ways that, you know, have, I, I think, been, you know, very um, destructive for them. And a lot of foolhardy policy choices. I mean, the utterly um, fruitless blockade of Qatar comes to mind. Right. You know, so that um, that ended now or mostly ended, um, really didn't produce any results. And what is Yemen produced for the Saudis? So it'll be really interesting to see. You still see them announcing and recruiting for these mega developments. There's this neom in Saudi Arabia, which is the city of the future and blah, blah, blah. And it'll be really interesting to see um, if they can actually finance these things, um, if it actually brings in people from abroad, um, you know, People still seem willing to invest in, in the Gulf, um, you know, Westerners or Western banks and things like that. So it's always to my surprise um, <laughs> how excited people are to uh, to invest there. Um, so I, I think it, it remains to be seen. Well, it's one thing to, uh, you know, for the investors to make a lot of money, but for the, the people, you know, who are on the ground who may be taxed to, uh, you know, reimburse and pay the yeah. interest on things like that not not so popular necessarily and of course we've mentioned israel and trump had this <laughs> alleged peace deal between the uae and israel and Correct. you mentioned abrahamic something before is that is that what oh we're i think they're about? called the abraham accords the yeah abraham that's accords. what they called that's what they named them <laughs> so well, what about this alleged peace deal between the uae and israel I, I i'm skeptical of of how legitimate and significant it was but but you tell me you look into this stuff much more than i do um well so the uae and israel had had i mean i think it was it's more of an official acknowledgement of something that's been going on for years um, so it's not so much a peace deal as it, like mm. I said, it's sort of a recognition or normalization. Um, they've had back channel and informal um, security arrangements, particularly, um, you know, dealing with what they see as the Iran threat um, for years now. And so this sort of brings it into the light um, and it, now it's sort of public and they're doing people to people exchanges and things like that. Um, but it, it's not really new. In that sense. And of course, the UAE got um, arms purchases. Mm -hmm. you, you know, the U.S. is um, selling them fighter planes and fighter jets and all sorts of uh, war machinery in exchange for this. So they got something for it. Oh, goody. <laughs> yes. And um, Morocco, um, in oh, another yeah. troubling example of this, Morocco got the Western Sahara, which is a yes. contested region <laughs> um, there, uh, much against the... Um, you know, aspirations and wishes and, and many would say rights of the Sahrawi people who are the indigenous people of that region who've been fighting for independence for 40, 50 years. Um, so that's also very problematic that the U.S. is just sort of 
you know, passing out like candy acknowledgments of contested regions in exchange for a deal. Um, And that's why I said it really remains to be seen in terms of the reverberations of these things, because it's so new. And of course, as people on this who listen to the show have heard me say too many times, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. And the part of ISIS's motivation was something similar to what happened with Morocco and the Western Sahara in that the West came in and said, oh, here's the new line in the sand. And what? We, you know, they, they yeah. do into a, a, the U.S. officially recognized uh, a change in border. I don't think anybody else did there. And that's no. just incredibly dumb as far as I can tell. Oh. <laughs> but so... Absolutely. And again, the hypocrisy of not recognizing people's legitimate claims to self-governance, right? So, you know, when we talk about democratization and all of this, and then we just say, oh, your claims, your legitimate claims to self, uh, self-governance can be discarded because this works better for this other country that we want to help. I mean, uh-huh. that just goes also to, um, you know, to reinforce that narrative, that rightful narrative of our political hypocrisy. Now, the Western Sahara you know, Morocco is maybe a more um, peripheral part in terms of other countries in the region or North Africa has its own sort of dynamics. And so I wouldn't say that the Western Sahara is something that's particularly meaningful, right. you know, in, in to you know the Lebanese or the Jordanians. But Palestine is really, you know, pal- solidarity with the Palestinian people and um, a real anger over occupied Palestine. That that really is across the region and across the Muslim world more generally. So um, that's much more. Um, you know, going to really um, garner anger from people, kind of everyday people. Oh, it has thus far, and it's continued yeah. on and on and on. And members of Congress from both parties have marched in lockstep yes. with Israel decade after decade after decade. Obviously, the members of Congress on both parties have looked to Jewish Americans for campaign support, and they've kind of assumed that. Uh, you know, if we just, they want us to back Israel, number one, you know, over everything else. I sense a real change is happening there among uh, American, uh, Jewish Americans that uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're starting to get, ooh, you know, we, we can criticize Israel. We're not anti-Semitic. I'm Jewish and I do criticize Israel. I, I, I sense a real change is happening with the lockstep that, members of Congress felt that they had to walk in for the last few decades. What's your sense of that? And what might be mm-hmm. the result of that change? It's, it's happening slowly, but I think steadily. Um, yes, I agree with you. I would say there's two two parts to that. So one is, I think, um, you know, younger Jewish Americans um, have, as Israel has had a turn to the right um, mm-hmm. under Netanyahu. Yes. Um, they've really felt alienation from those politics um, that don't align with their politics. And so I think um, that's one major factor, right? And so you've seen that from, you know, anti-Zionists, you've seen that from Zionists that don't want a right, you know, to be working with a right-wing Israeli government like J Street and those places. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think under the Trump administration, it's really crystallized that American-Israel policy has, a, at least on the Republican side, has a lot more to do with evangelical Christians yes. than it does with with Jewish Americans. Yes. And so I think that's become very. Um, they were, and in some ways, it's uh, a favor because they were so sort of explicit about it. 
um, that it, everyone sort of had to recognize, right? This is not no one's interested really in the Israelis here or what's good for Israel mm-hmm. or the Jewish people. This is about keeping the evangelical base happy who has, you know, a whole complicated set of associations, um, I believe to do with the coming, you know, the second coming mm-hmm. about Israel. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's a powerful sort of, um, you know, thing to keep in mind um, that, that you're, you're a pawn here in, in this game. That, oh, that, that, Israel is a pawn between yes. for the the evangelical right in America yes. looking forward to the rapture coming down someday. Exactly. And it happens to align sometimes with certain right wing, you know, either Israelis or backers of Israel, like the, you know, Sheldon Adelson mm-hmm. and people like that. So their, their interests might align sometimes. And, and so and yeah, not Netanyahu was more than happy to welcome you know, that support, it didn't matter to him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think for um, everyone else or a lot of other people, it was pretty clear that um, this had really nothing to do with, you know, um, any kind of safety for the Jewish people or any kind of positive um, relations for Israel or the Israeli people. And um, so um, I do think that um, those two things are, um, might be you know, really driving um, that change. But I think you're right. And it's something we talk about at Merup a little bit is that, you know, we were really for many years, one of a few lone voices or there weren't, you couldn't publish the things that we published criticizing the Israeli occupation in mainstream publications. But now actually, you know, these are sort of center left positions um, that, you know, criticizing the occupation, you know, starting to talk about this in terms of an apartheid state, um, things like that, how Democrat, I mean, I think now I'm going to blank, but I just saw some major newspapers say, how, how is, how democratic is Israel really if it's occupying the Palestinians? We've seen a lot of criticism um, and coverage of the fact that Israel is, um, you know, having a very successful vaccination drive that completely excludes the Palestinians. Right. You know, it's it's not as great the coverage as we would want. We'd want to see a lot more coverage. And there's definitely been gloss of that. But I've also seen a lot of pushback to that. Yes, for sure. And I wonder, obviously, Trump and Netanyahu, I mean, you know, right wingers are, you know, a shrinking club, let us hope, knock on wood, that I I, I wonder how uh, Biden has been. I, I have really no idea how he is with the you know, far right in in the state of Israel. Uh, and I mean, uh, Netanyahu's corruption is, is certainly uh, becoming front and center over there. But I'm hoping that there might be, you know, because there's a, a great variety of public opinion in Israel. The, the support for Netanyahu has been from outside Israel more, I think, than it's been from, from inside Israel. So do we know about Biden and uh, Netanyahu or, or what his attitude may be toward Palestinian rights and, and freeing up Gaza? So we know that, um, uh, that Netanyahu did not have good relations with the Obama administration, that there was, I think, both politically but also just a personal Mm-hmm. mismatch there. They did not get along. And I have read, although I have no specific personal information, that Biden and Netanyahu did not have warm fuzzies. <laughs> they were not aligned. That said, I don't think Biden is going to be, um, you know, that American president who comes in and talks about, you know, ending the occupation or um, I don't think he's going to be the champion that Palestinian people need. Um, and I don't think that that's going to be on the agenda. And frankly, I think that my guess is that they're going to try to staunch some of the damage from these Abraham Accords and the backing of Netanyahu. But I 
would be really surprised if um, Israel and the Middle East is really any kind of a priority. Right. So the extent that they're not going to try to make their name like Clinton did on a peace deal. True. It's not going to happen. And an opportunity that, that sometimes Americans forget is that we we do matter. Our voices do matter. Pressuring members of Congress, pressuring the president is worthwhile. They, they need, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Biden doesn't start out that way, you know, in terms of, of supporting, you know, real change with regard to Israel and Palestine. But we can push and we have an opportunity to push now. And it absolutely does matter. I mean, look at the corporations now that because of the uh, the insurrection in Washington are pulling back yeah. from supporting uh, the, the Republican Party because of public opinion. It does matter. And one thing about Biden, I remember, I forget which campaign it was. He's, he's run a few times. And th- I saw him in, in New Hampshire uh, in an early campaign proposing to support a division of Iraq into three regions, the Kurd, Shia, and Sunni. The, the, cho- the idea apparently came from his choice for Secretary of State, William Blinken. What about that? And I, I don't know anything about Blinken, but go ahead. Um, yeah, and so I'm not super knowledgeable about Blinken either, but I will say that I think that one of the... Um, uh, traps that the U.S. has fallen into in its um, policy history has been to overemphasize the role of sectarianism in the region uh. and to sort of see sectarianism as, of course, there's conflict. There's Shia and Sunni, and it's this sort of automatic conflict. And to really see the divisions between them in societies where there is diversity um, like that um, is being much deeper and much more essential than they actually are. And so I think that's the case in Syria, and I think that's the case in Iraq. And mm. I think Thinking about things on those lines are is not the way to do it. And I think we need to recognize that um, just like in many other parts of the world, um, places in the Middle East were mul- very cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. um, multi-sectarian um, places um, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and that was never a problem. And um, so I think that anything that... Um, that sort of reinforces that is going to lead to more unintended consequences. Oh, my goodness. Well, the Kurds, though, the Kurds, I would think, from what little I know, deserve some sort of a, a state. They, they were some of the most effective fighters against ISIS. And yes. once again, they got the shaft from the U.S. What, what about the Kurds? I mean, they, they deserve some sort of recognition or something. What, what's their role? I don't know if there's that many of them or, or, or how much... Well, so- as I understand that the Kurds are the largest um, ethnic linguistic ethnic group without its own homeland um, in the world. They, you know, are in Iran, Iraq, mm-hmm. Turkey, Turkey um, and Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you were right. They were sort of the most um, reliable partners in the fight against ISIS. Um, but interestingly, some, um, for instance, you know, they're attracting not just Kurdish um, adherents and fighters. They have people all over Syria, Arabs um, coming and signing up because they're promoting a fairly democratic, egalitarian ethos there and leadership style. So, you know, the it's not just Kurds for Kurds. It's that there's uh-huh. been real examples of leadership um, among different Kur- Kurdish organizations. That is really what a lot of people, for instance, in Syria, that's why they were in the, you know, they were rising up against Assad to begin with, you know, not because... Um, you know, he was Alawite, but it was because they wanted a, a democratic or at least a more democratic 
uh, government. And so that that ethos is appealing to people. Um, you know, the, the Kurds in northern Iraq have been a, a semi-autonomous for mm-hmm. many, many years now. Um, and they have, you know, their issues, but over, overall have been, you know, I think pretty, pretty happy um, with that. But they are part of a, of a regional um, government. But I think when you come to the Sunnis and Shias, I mean, you know, Kurds had their own language. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a different situation as well as there are many other people in Iraq who don't fall into one of those three categories. You have mm. lots of Christian, different Christian communities, Yazidis, um, you have mm. lots of Sunnis and Shia who, you know, maybe not be particularly religious, so it might not matter to them. You've had prior to a lot of these sort of divisions being strengthened through conflict, you had a lot of intermarriage, particularly in cities, right. um, things like that. So the, the lines, it's not so obvious. Uh-huh. So dividing into territories. Well, let's let's make you Secretary of State. What, what <laughs> oh, would, please no. <laughs> what, what might a better policy look like? Right. So first of all, um, I would end um, arms sales uh, to autocratic governments um, and probably end arms sales um, across the region. So we should not be um, selling arms to Saudi Arabia to the UAE, we should not be selling um, arms to Egypt <laughs> mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Um, we And when I say arms, I think that includes weapons of war. But as we've discussed earlier, I think that absolutely includes um, technological weapons yeah. of surveillance, which I think are the new weapons of war mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've talked about this on some of your podcasts before. Um, this is the new frontier, right? The new um, front in a war. So I think we have to be really careful. And as, as new technologies come up in the United States, we have to be vigilant as a government to institute export controls over things that could be used against their own citizens or externally. Um, I would advocate ending economic sanctions. I think that they um, do yes. more good or more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they destabilize the region. They punish people who don't deserve to be punished. Um, and I think... Like you said, uh, with uh, South Africa, and I think, you know, with Iran, maybe there's some evidence that they nudged the regime, but I don't think the, the balance isn't there. Um, it doesn't, it's not good enough. Um, and then I would put more, and I would, um, the third point I would make is to make sure that I wasn't just talking about democratization over um, you know, sort of political power, that I was actually criticizing my allies um, inflicting consequences when they were violating that, um, but mm. also being very honest within that about the struggles everyone has with maintaining democracy. So coming to that conversation as an honest broker, saying we have our own struggles with democracy. Sure. So we we want to partner with other dem- democracies, and we're not going to tolerate or look the other way if you're you know oppressing your people and all of that. But not coming to it as a we know all yeah. sort of posture. <laughs> yeah. Which we've definitely, um, I've definitely done. Um, and my final policy, I've got all the power now. No, sure. <laughs> what would I, what would I do? Um, no, I think I would really focus on um, connections with civil society because there's amazing things happening around the region um, with civil society actors um, that often don't get the support and help they need externally, the funding they need. Um, and um, so under really dire circumstances, managed to do amazing things. So I would make sure that we were really um, finding those groups and those um, movements and people and working with them as opposed to governments. I'll vote for you. 
<laughs> so there are tremendous possibilities here. There really are. Thank you so much. It's very, very informative here, and it's nice to have some degree of optimism for change right now. Mandy Turk, Executive Director of Middle East Research and Information Project, Merip.org, I'm guessing? Yes, Merip.org. Uh, we're a completely open access, free resource. Um, of course, we appreciate donations because yeah. we are a 501c3, but um, our 50, almost uh, our entire archive of 50 years is available. Fantastic. So for historical questions and current analysis, please come check us out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.